Uh, we are in First Thessalonians chapter 3. We are in, our, in the middle of our series entitled Ready, Strength for Today and Finding Hope for Tomorrow. As we're walking for, through First Thessalonians, uh, and we're seeing as what Paul's letter meant to the Thessalonians and how we can apply it to our lives. And as we delve into our passage today, I, I, three words came into my mind. And it's the expression, it's an American idiom called ready, willing, and able. We've all heard that expression, uh, at least most of us have, that have, that have come from this country and this culture. And, and what it means is, is when we talk about something or, or someone having an opportunity for something, and we say that they are ready, they are prepared to do whatever we're asking them to do. And we're saying that they're willing, they're ready to do it. Not only are they, are they prepared, but they have a will, a desire to do whatever it is we're asking of them. And then we say uh, they are able, meaning that they have this ability to do it. Now, sometimes when we, we, we talk to people, we see people are, they might have two of them, but not three of them. Meaning that they're ready, they're willing, but they lack the ability. Or that they might be not ready, but, and they're just waiting around and they have the ability, but they're just not prepared yet. You know, as Christians, if we're to do what God wants us to do and to be what God wants us to be, we need all three. We need to be ready to follow Him. Now, and we need to be willing to do it. And then we need to understand that we need to have that ability, the divine inspired ability to do that, whatever He has called us to be and called us to do. I was talking with a woman who has been listening to my sermons online, and uh, she's always constantly harassing me because I'm referring to her in my messages and about her. She's, she's seeking out who Jesus is. She wants to follow him. And I talked to her about it. She's reading the word of God. And she's, she's being touched each and every week. She's been in my small group. God is clearly working in her life, is touching her. And, I, and um, she, she seems to have a, a willingness. She has the ability to do it. What she's lacking right now, she says, I'm not ready yet. And she goes, I, I, I want to make sure that I, I am doing it out of the right motive of my heart. And I said, that's good. I don't want to push that. I don't want to rush it because I want her to understand that she needs to count the cost before you follow Jesus. See, there are some people that follow Jesus and they do so because everybody around them is. They do so or they were touched in a moment. They decide to do it, but they haven't counted the cost. What it means to follow him. So we need to understand that when we follow God and all that he has for us, we have to be ready to go, meaning that we're ready to offer our life. We need to count the cost and what it means. We need to be willing to do. I'm ready to go, Lord. I'm ready to give up everything to follow you. I want to I do everything in my power to be right with you. And then to understand that ability. And that ability comes from God drawing you to himself. Because Jesus said, no one comes to, the, uh, comes to the Father except through me. And it also talks about that It's those whom the Father draws to himself. So today we're going to talk about what it means to be ready, willing, and able as we delve into this passage. Then we see Paul, his ready, willing, and able, and he see the Thessalonians are ready, willing, and able to follow. And through this, we're going to see what we need to be ready, willing, and able to do and to be. So before we go any further, let's ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, We pray that you speak to our hearts today. Draw us unto yourself and glorify your name. Lord, reveal the idols of our heart that are keeping us from following you completely. May we forsake them. May we embrace you. May we cling to you with a a holy fire, a holy desire. Lord, we pray you speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So we're going to delve into this passage, and I would encourage you to stay with me as we go through this. Let's go with verse 6. Now remember, if I'm going to set this up a little bit, and I think we've understood what's going on. For those that haven't been with us, let me give you a little understanding of what's going on. Uh, just very brief, Paul had, uh, is an itinerant evangelist. And he's gone from city to city sharing the truth of Jesus, as was his custom. He would go into a synagogue if there was one in a certain city. He would proclaim the gospel and reason from the Old Testament who Jesus was. And, and if after the synagogues, he would often go into the marketplaces, and he would share with them according to what they knew and they understood. And we see he'd gone into the city of Thessalonica, which was uh, now known as Thessaloniki. It's in Greece. It's a port city, kind of a cosmopolitan city, made up of different, many different ethnicities and backgrounds and races. And as was Paul's custom, he went into the synagogue on three different Sabbaths. We don't know if they were consecutive. We don't know if they were over several months, but we know it was under a year. And he uh, shared the truth of Jesus, and many people came to saving faith in Christ. But as was often happened, is that when Jesus is proclaimed someplace, it means that people are changing. And we don't like change very much, do we? As people. And it's nothing new. We don't like change. We usually sit in the same seat or same area. Even if you've come to church and you've been here repeatedly, most of us the same, sit in the same sections over and over and over again. We just get accustomed to certain things. We like our routines. We like how things go. And when a change such as Christ comes in, it is seismic change. It changes people. It changes marriages. It changes individuals. It changes cities. And people are threatened by that. And that's exactly what happened in Thessaloniki or Thessalonica as it was known then. And that spouses were being changed. Some very prominent wives of politicians were being changed. And it was influencing even policy and, and people's businesses. And it was into the, I mean, it was, it, was out go, it was going on and people's lives were being changed. And it caused, in essence, a riot. And Paul was run out of Thessalonica. And he wasn't able to really disciple and plant this church in the way that he felt was, was really adequate. I mean, they only had piecemeal of the face, certain sections of it, really. And they weren't extremely rooted. They didn't have seminary degrees. I mean, this was fox, foxhole faith, in essence. And so he's worried about them because he knew that they believed. And as we learned last week, salvation has three levels. There is, uh, I am saved. That's justification. I am being saved, which is sanctification. And then I will be saved, which is glorification. And we see our salvation played out on all three levels. Sometimes we just isolate the justification. And we say, I am saved, but we don't have a concept of I'm being saved, I'm being made holy, I'm being more like Jesus, or glorification. And when we say salvation, often we just refer to the, this period of justification. And God is saying, no, it needs to be a, a broader understanding. And Paul knew that. That's why he was nervous. They had, in essence, been justified, but he wanted to see them being saved. He was worried about them. So he is, he is really nervous. He's not hearing news of what's going on. Finally, they send Timothy. Timothy comes back with this great report, and that's what we come upon in verse 6. Paul writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith. This is great news. Paul's excited. He's ecstatic. And love, he's, he's brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Paul is tremendously encouraged. Their faith and love were strong. Not to mention, when Timothy told them that he was with Paul, they remembered him kindly. He had left a wonderful example behind. So wonderful, in fact, that they longed to see him. They wanted to encourage him, to let him know that his work was not in vain, to thank him. For sharing Jesus with them. 
And it was a reciprocal relationship. Paul longed to see them as much as they longed for, to see, uh, to see the, him. They wanted to see each other. Now, what can we learn from this? What is the principle that God is trying to show us? Why did God include this passage within his word? I believe that God is telling us and showing us through Paul and the Thessalonians how much we truly need one another. Disciple, discipler, and new disciple. What God is showing us is that we need to embrace community and embrace this togetherness that God has for us. See, Paul longs to see them. They long to see him. There's this relationship, this longing to be together, to, ha- to share that common fellowship and faith that we have, that we need one another. And he's saying, I want you to embrace community. I want you to see that. I want you to long to be with one another, to share the truth of who Jesus is, to grow in your knowledge of who he is. See, we truly need one another. There's no Christian life without his church. We need the church. We need the body of Christ. We need other believers, especially the stories of new believers, because they encourage us. They show us that God is still working. See, you see, when we first come to know Christ, we grow like gangbusters. We're we're taking risks for his kingdom. We're reading the Bible. We're exploring all that is in it. We want to share our faith with anyone who will listen. But as time goes by, opposition increases. We get harder questions. We start to deal with the, the day-to-day of our life that seems to drain us. And then we see the root sins working in our flesh. We tire, we slow down, and many turn from their first and purest love to Christ. See, it is in community that we're allowed to work these questions out. It is in this community that God has for us that we encourage one another. We truly show the reality of our faith. Where forgiveness and grace are found, it is truly the safest place on earth. See, Paul had anxiety about the condition of the Thessalonians, but when he heard about their faith, he received a measure of comfort. There was encouragement and a relief of stress. See, Paul was stressed out. They had been going through a great deal of dis- Look at the text. He says, in the midst of our distress and affliction. Now, the word, the d- word distress in Greek is it's a very serious word. It basically means, uh, refers to choking and pressing care. And then the word afflictions is, uh, is crushing trouble, persecution. Combined, they show that Paul was going through an extremely stressful time. I mean, he had stress. And you th- we think that, again, these Bible characters did not live life the way we did. I mean, they did. They were people. They dealt with stressful situations. They had family problems. They had relational issues. They had, they, I mean, they had greater stress than many of us could ever imagine. Ours is a stress of having so many things and busy, but Paul is stressed. He's got the daily concern of the churches. He's being rejected by his family, rejected by his countrymen, rejected by city officials. He's, he's wondering about these, small, these churches that he planted and what's going on. He's been hungry. He's been cold. He's been naked. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten for his faith. He's got stress. He could use a spa day. I mean, he needs, he, he, he is just really afflicted. But what gives him great relief? What helps relieve his stress? Hearing the news of somebody else's faith. See, that's what community does. When we're in community with one another and we hear about other examples of people's faith, our struggles don't seem so hard. You ever had that? You ever had someone, you, you, you think your stress is a big deal? And I'm not saying it's not. It's a stress for you. But you hear other struggles and what they've gone through, and then you hear they've come through it, and it encourages you. It helps relieve your burden. To know that they can get through it, I can get through it. They've been through this. It helps us relieve our stress. See, that's one of the things that community does. It helps to relieve our stress. 
It helps us to realize that we're not alone, that there are, there, there, there are those that are coming alongside us to help bear our burdens with us, to encourage us to be there with us, to know someone has your back, that someone cares for you, that someone will be there for you. We are the church. It's not a building. It's a people. And we need community. And as our church continues to grow, our small groups take on greater importance because we can't connect to everyone anymore. But we can connect to a group of people where we can share our struggles, be encouraged, prayed for, and cared for. So this kind of community not only relieves our stress, but it also serves to recharge our spiritual life. Recharge our spiritual life. Look at verse 8. Paul says, For now we live. If... If you are standing fast in the Lord. Now, the Greek word for live means to live once more. It means that despite what they were going through, it gave them a new burst of energy. When they heard that others had remained steadfast in the face of hostility, it encouraged them. They felt alive by hearing what was happening to them. This kind of community recharges our spiritual batteries. This past week, I, I came upon uh, the story of, and it's one that I've known for quite some time, but um, the story of David Brainerd. Is anyone familiar with, some people here might be familiar with David Brainerd. David Brainerd was uh, an early missionary in America to the Native Americans in the 1700s. He was contemporary of such figures as Benjamin Franklin, uh, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and John Wesley. And this young man came to saving faith in Christ at the age of 21. Um, And he died of tuberculosis at the age of 29. Now, it seems like his life didn't do very much, but yet the journals that he left behind in his story, Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote down. And it became so famous, and it influenced so many people that it propelled people into the mission field. Names such as William Carey. Uh, William Carey, the great missionary known as the father of modern missions. A man named Henry Martin, who was also a missionary to India and to Persia. To Adoniram Judson, who went into countries such as Burma. They all cited him, and there's many different people who have been so touched by this young man's eight years of ministry. And his life and all that he went through, that it inspired and recharged them. Why? Why was it about this young man in this small ministry that he had to Native Americans and, and that touched so many people? Well, when you read his life, you see what he went through. This man was suffering from tuberculosis from the time he was in his early 20s. He was almost daily vomiting blood. He was in so much pain all the time. And yet, God called him to the mission field. So he went to the mission field. And he found that it was very, very difficult. He didn't speak the language. For those that don't speak the language and come from a different culture, how hard it is trying to survive in America without speaking the language, is it not? You come from from Congo or Iraq or whatever country you come from, Burma, uh, Nepal, uh, Germany, Mongolia. We have people come from so many different cultures. It's very difficult when you don't speak the language, especially when you want to communicate something that you're extremely passionate about. And that's what he was trying to do. He was, he was sacrificing himself to communicate the gospel message to these natives. And not only that, he was going through hardship after hardship. As he was dealing with sickness, he was being rejected oftentimes. Uh, by, his message was being rejected. I mean, he found himself cold, without proper clothing, without proper food and sustenance, proper shelter. There's times that he's traveling alone and he falls into icy rivers and he has no way of warming himself. He has a horse diet from underneath him and he has to end up kill the horse. And then he has to walk 30 miles to get to his, his, his destination. He's dealing with depression that he had had from the time that he was a young man. Even after he came to Christ, his depression was alleviated somewhat, but it still continued. And he was subject to, as it was known in that period of time, melancholy. 
And so he's dealing with his depression, he's dealing with rejection, he's dealing with his sickness, and despite all of that, his faith never wavered. His, his zeal never abated. Matter of fact, it increased dramatically. He wanted Christ all the more. All of these afflictions, all of these struggles served just as kindling to, for his heart to know Jesus and to make him known. Instead of making him more, I mean, so depressed that he didn't do it, he went and pressed on to the point where he couldn't even continue on in ministry any longer. And he went to Jonathan Edwards' home, and that's where he ended up dying. And, and Jonathan Edwards said, even on his deathbed, he's praying for people. He's telling us. He's encouraging us. He's teaching us. His life was just one burnt offering to God. He was consumed with one desire, one passion. And that was to know Jesus and to make him known. And it has influenced countless people. So when you see someone on fire for Jesus, does that not recharge your batteries? You want to be around them. You want to know them. You want to, you want to know what, what it is about them. There's some, I've, had some, I've had the privilege of meeting some great men and women of God in my life. And I, and I see after they get done speaking, and they're surrounded by people because people want to know. They want to grow. They want to understand. They want to, have their, they want to take some of that fire for themselves. See, there's something about community, biblical community, that fires us up. It recharges our spiritual life. Now, see, what happens, though, when we live out this biblical community? See, notice what Paul wanted to do when he heard about their faith. Look at verse 9 with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. See, they felt joy and they wanted to articulate that joy by responding to God in praise. You see, when we embrace community in this way, it makes us want to respond to God in praise. See, when we delight in something, what do you do? When you see a video on YouTube that delights you, or you hear a song, or you see something funny, or you see a movie that is so amazing, you, what do you want to do? First thing you want to do is you want to share it, right? In our world, Facebook, we share something. Something touches us, something means something to us, we share it immediately. Because it seems like the action is not completed until it's shared. It's just like with my wife, when I see my wife, and I have to tell you this, Okay, she's, you can tell her this, but I'll tell her anyway because I do all the time. I'm in love with my wife. I, I mean, I choose to love my wife, but I'm also in love with my wife. And I'm constantly, to the point I think she gets annoyed, praising her. And I can't, it, honestly, and this, this is just reality, I can't but help praise her because I love her so much. It overflows from me. And sometimes I'm like, am I annoying you? <laughs> Because I love you, and you are gorgeous to me. And I have to share it, because it's overflowing from me. I can't contain it any longer. See, the same is with God. See, when something's so great about God, you want to respond, and God desires that. See, God does many things that he does so that we do worship him. Do you know that? God, God does these many things. It shows that in, in Israel, when he, when he freed the Israelites from uh, slavery in Egypt, he did so to multiply his wonders so that his, his, he might receive glory. The idea is praise. He might be made famous. Why? Doesn't it seem a little vain to you? God does something to get attention? When we see that in a human, we get really frustrated. They do something to get attention. But see, with God, it's different. See, God delights in showing himself, and he, he delights in us praising him. And he commands us through the Psalms to praise him, by the way. 
Matter of fact, C.S. Lewis, uh, when he was an unbeliever, he read the book of Psalms and he was frustrated by the book of Psalms because he said, it seems like a vain woman asking for compliments, saying, doesn't my dress look pretty? Pray, you know, tell me how beautiful I look. See how pretty I am. That's how he felt that God was. And that he realized something, though. God was commanding us to praise him, not because that he was vain, but because in the act of praising him, God was communicating himself to us. See, God desires to show himself to us. He commands us to praise him because he wants to communicate himself to us. He wants to give himself to us. And by commanding us to praise him, we are, we are communing with him and he's communicating himself to us. That's amazing. See, God desires that we do something in life, and when he does something, that we respond in praise because then he's giving us himself and he's increasing our joy in God. You'll hear me pray probably till my dying day that when I, when I end my prayers, that I say, for your glory and for what? Our joy. Our joy. Because see, God desires us to be joyful, not happy. There's a difference. Happy is circumstantial. Joy is not about circumstance. It's an inner quality of being that comes from knowing God. See, God commands us to be joyful and to delight in Him because when God is most glorified in us is when we are most satisfied in Him, as John Piper has said. So we need to seek our joy in God, and we respond to God in praise, and God longs for us to do that. Now, I want us to look at verse 10. As Paul says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. See, God, once again, has shown that he desires that we seek him in prayer specifically and that we ask of him, that we entreat God. God longs for us to call on him, to entreat God, to ask of him. How many people want to be asked of something? You know, with my kids, my kids are getting older, and when they're little, they ask for things, and they get older, and it comes to a point in time when they need more things. And then I don't want them to ask anymore because it gets annoying. Have you ever had your kids be annoying? No, liar. Okay, we've all had that. But see, God never gets annoyed. God desires and longs for us to entreat of him, to ask of him. He wants to communicate himself to us. Notice notice what he says here. They prayed earnestly, night and day, because they wanted to see him face to face. They wanted to see God work in their lives. And if we're to entreat God, it requires us to long for God to work. Do you have a longing for God to work? We must have a longing for God to show himself to be God. We must yearn for him, ache for him, not be satisfied until he works. It's the deer panting for flowing streams, our souls thirsting for God, for the living God in Psalm 42. It's holding on to God like Jacob did, refusing to let go until he was blessed, Genesis 32. It's the woman who tries to touch Jesus' garment to be healed, longs to be healed in Matthew 9.21. Or the friends who long for their friend to be made well, who tore apart the roof of the house and dropped that, they lowered their paralyzed friend down, Mark 2.4. See, we must come to God desperate. We must yearn long and refuse to leave until he is satisfied the craving of our soul. We must be like blind Bartimaeus. Remember the story of blind Bartimaeus? I love the story of blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus is sitting there 
as Jesus is walking by, he hears that Jesus is walking by, and he's, he can't see, and he's begging, and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Because he hears the crowd, he hears the commotion. You can just picture this man saying that he can hear what's there. And people, shh, just shh, don't. What's he do? He gets louder. Jesus! Because he recognizes where his hope is. He's the only hope that he has. He's yearning. He's longing to be healed. He's longing, Jesus, son of David. People are, shut up. Shut up, Bartimaeus. Jesus! He wouldn't let go. He kept calling on, calling out. He came to God desperate. He longed for God to work. Do you long for God to work? What is it that you're longing for God to do in your life? What are you yearning for him for? What are you longing for him for? Is it for yourself? Is it for your marriage? Is it for your children? Maybe your, your child has is, is gone wayward, or maybe your child is in danger right now. Are you yearning and crying out for them? What is it about your marriage? Maybe your spouse saying, I'm done, I'm gone, I'm out. Lord, please. Maybe you're, you're needing a healing for yourself, and you're yearning. You're calling out to God, I want you to come desperate. That's what he longs for us to do, is to come to him hungry, to long for him. Paul's saying, we earnestly prayed for you, day and night. We yearn for God to show himself. Do you yearn for that? Do you long for that? That's what God wants. He wants us to come hungry, to yearn for him, not to come in pride, not to come self-satisfied, to come hungry. Do we have a longing for God to work? See, nothing will change through us if the work doesn't begin in us. We must have a longing for God, a holy hunger that realizes when we are not sustained by bread alone, but everywhere that proceeds from the mouth of God. We begin with a longing for God to work, but we must make sure that we not only pray for ourselves, instead we must learn to lobby God for others. Lobby God for others. It's a time of political stuff going on right now. The word lobby is appropriate. See, Paul prayed that they might, through prayer, be able to supply what is lacking in their faith. See, this is where we must come back to what we said last week. We are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. As we are being saved, we are to grow in this salvation. Our faith needs to be fully developed, and the knowledge of that comes through the full counsel of God's word. We just don't read and apply the things we like. We need to grow deeper with God. And one of the ways that we do that is by considering others, helping others, serving others, helping people grow in their walk with Him. However, we cannot help people grow beyond where we ourselves have not gone, where we have gone ourselves. Where are you in your walk with God right now? Stagnant? Steady? Are you growing? You learning? What are you waiting for? What's 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 the problem? Have you turned from God? Have you allowed some sin to creep into your life to get a hold of you? What is it? What is God wanting to do in your life? What is He calling you to? God is calling you to go to a deeper place with Him, to deepen your walk with Him. And part of that means not just praying for ourselves but praying for other people. See, uh, many of you know I'm a huge fan of the author C.S. Lewis. 
And many of them know that he was a great writer, he was a great intellectual, but what many do not know is that he was also a, 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 a very dedicated praying man. He considered it his sacred ministry to pray for others. He had people that wrote him from all over the world after they read his books, people from uh, all of Great Britain, from Australia, uh, and from the United States, with, poured in with requests and burdens of their heart. He felt it his duty to respond to everyone. And then he, and if they asked for prayer, he considered his duty to pray for them. And he would stop what he was doing at certain hours of the day, and he would spend that time in prayer to the point where even when he was in a car ride, he never owned a car, so he would pay a taxi driver who was actually a dedicated Christian to drive him around. And there are times when he would get into the car, and the taxi driver's name was Clifford Morris, and he said, Morris, I'm sorry, I can't talk for a quarter of an hour. I need to do my prayers. He would take that time to pray. He would stop what he was doing, and he would pray because he considered his duty to pray for other people from all over the world. Are we entreating God in that way? Do we entreat God for people, not just ourselves? Or do we need to make sure that we don't just keep on speaking? When we do speak to God, we need to stop and we need to remember that part of prayer is not just speaking. It's listening. It's listening. See, as we, after we entreat God for someone, we need to make sure that we don't just keep on speaking, but then we need to listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. I think that's something that we have a very hard time with today. I see many, I, you know, I've been, I, I'm a big student of the, the church in the world, um, especially in the United States of America. And you're seeing bigger and bigger churches, and you see all these things that are going on, but what you don't see are disciples being made, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes. And you see people that are addicted to programs, and they want the big boom, they want the lights, they want the sound, they want all of those different things. What they have a very hard time with is being silent. We're not very good at being silent any longer. And see, when I think of silence, I think of Elijah. When he met with God on, on the Mount, uh, I think it was Pisgah. And he, he remember, he, he wants to see God. And God, there's a, there's a big rain, there's a storm, there's an earthquake. And God is not in any of those things. And it's in the small whisper. The problem that many of us have is we're too busy or too addicted to our entertainment to hear from God any longer. God is calling us to get away. That's why, by the way, it's another reason we're asking people to fast. To fast. Because, honestly, we like to cover up our aloneness and our numbness with things. And we can become so busy today, whether it's alcohol, whether it's entertainment, whether it's food. And God is calling us to break that hold on us. And we do that by fasting. Because we're showing and telling our body, telling our flesh that we're not sustained by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Fasting is a very important thing. It is a discipline that is often lost and often been abused. But in our world of excess, especially in the United States of America, we have to learn to be quiet again. Because there's always a constant stream of noise that is ready to come in and cloud our walk with God and take us away from our purest love for him. We need to make sure that we stop and listen. See, if we, if we were to approach God with only in, an incessant stream of words, that's a filibuster, not prayer. It's a monologue, not a dialogue. Prayer is a dialogue. We need to stop, quiet ourselves, and listen to what God has for us. Now, while we see Paul entreating God, he breaks out into prayer, which shows that we need not only... Uh, not only to talk about and treat God in prayer, but to actually engage in prayer. Engage in prayer. Look back at verse 11. And Paul writes, he says, 
Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. We need to engage in prayer. I'm amazed at how many Christians are afraid to pray. Have you prayed with your spouse, by the way? Or prayed for your children? It's not that hard to do. It really isn't. Just lean over before you go to bed. Say, honey, I'm going to pray. Grab, your, grab her hand. Grab his hand. Just pray. Say, God, be with our family. Watch over our kids. Show us yourself. Amen. That's good. That's a good start. Hopefully it grows from that. But we need to engage in prayer. Speaking to God. We need not be afraid of it. Paul He breaks out into prayer in the middle of his letter to the Thessalonians. He prays that they may grow and abound in their love for one another. That's a great prayer. That we might grow in our our love for one another. Look at verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. See, why does Paul pray for them to abound in love for one another? Because it is only love that will keep them on target. Remember Paul said that uh, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love motivates us. Motiva- love motivates us in ways that no other emotion will. Love is what motivates a mother to run out into the street to grab her child right before they're hit before in, in a car. Love is what motivates a man to protect his wife in the midst of gunfire and around. Love. Love motivates, love directs, love sacrifices. So he's saying there that we are to pray for one another, to pray that, uh, pray for God's people to love one another. And not only that, but look next at the next verse where he says, so that, in verse 13, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and our Father. That's a tough one. See, it's interesting. When we talk about the word holiness, all these really strange feelings come up. We, come, we start thinking about all that we can't do. We can't have fun. We can't engage in different activities. We, we picture Puritans for whatever reason. They've gotten a bad, bad label. We just have this understanding that, that holiness means boredom. That's not what holiness is. Holiness is thinking like God and acting such a way that we find our joy in Him. That's what holiness is. Because, see, holiness is a condition. I mean, we are made holy the moment we trust in Christ. It's called positional holiness. When God sees you now, he sees his son. You are positionally holy in the, in the sight of God, but you are to be progressively holy, to be holy as I am holy, as God says to us in First Peter. So what that means, then, is we are becoming more like God, and our lives are being ordered under the authority of his word. Which means this, we need to live a life worthy of God. That's what he's saying to us. He is making sure that we live a life worthy of God. Is your life such a one that is worthy of God? And it can be seen in your home, work, school. It can be seen in the websites you go to, the music you listen to, the shows that you watch. It can be seen in the relationships that you have, how you spend your money, and how you conduct your life how you serve others. It is about 
things about not doing. It's about abstaining from sexual immorality, pornography, gambling, stealing, drunkenness, drugs, sorcery, fornication, horoscopes, and being moderate in our eating and drinking and the other pleasures of the flesh. But it doesn't mean that we don't have any fun. It means that the fun that we have is the kind that God delights in, and it comes with a clean conscience in the sight of Him. I don't find that holiness limits me as much as it enables me to see where my real joy is found. Lastly, we do all of this because we know that He is coming again. See, we must make sure that we look to His coming. We look to His coming. The reality is, is that we need that motivation. You know, it's, it's one thing that you've been at your job and you know the boss is coming. You ever had that happen? Well, the boss is coming. But this boss is not coming like he did the first time. See, the first time that Jesus came, he came humbly. He came as the suffering servant, as the prince of peace, the son of man. But the second time that he comes, he's coming as the conquering king. He's coming to bring his wrath. He will come to make every wrong right, to wipe every tear away. See, we need to look to his coming. There is a measure of accountability built into this passage. See, we know that he is coming again and that we'll have to give an account for our lives and that every single thing that we have ever done, every motive will be exposed and all the wrongs will be righted. It's going to be a terrible and awesome day, and for many it will be an awful day. We will see him in all of his awful glory. No longer will he be that suffering servant, but he'll be the tattooed victor. He'll be wearing a crown with a name that only he knows. He'll be the victorious king and righteous judge coming to pour out his wrath on all those who rejected, ignored, and fought against him. So we need to be ready what this message is about, being ready to long for what God longs for, to be, to entreat God, to engage Him in prayer, but to be motivated and ready to live the life that He wants us to live, to be ready, willing, and able. Are we? Are we willing to follow? Are we ready? Are we willing to give our life as God drawing us unto Himself? Maybe He's resisting, maybe He's calling you to follow Him. Maybe he has shown you who he is, that he is the, the Lord of glory who gave his life for you on the cross, paid the price for your sins, who took the wrath of God upon himself, and now he is calling you to himself. Or maybe he's calling you to the deeper walk with him, to, in, to entreat him, to engage him in prayer, to pour out your heart unto him. We are to seek his face and do what he says and be ready for the blessing that comes from doing what he has made and called us to be and do. Let's pray. Lord, your word is powerful. Your spirit draws us unto yourself. You comfort us, you teach us, you draw us unto yourself. And Lord, today I pray for each person here that they might be ready, willing, and able to do what it is that you call them to do and to be what it is that you have called them to be. 
I pray that your mercy might be manifested upon their lives. Lord, I pray that for each one of us that we might embrace the community, that we might have a longing to be together, that we might have a longing to see people grow in their walk with you, to see people grow in maturity, that they might become better disciples, fully devoted followers of you. And Lord, I pray that we might entreat you, that we might have a love for you, a longing for you to work in our lives and in the lives of those around us and in the lives of our church. Lord, you are the God who hears. You are the God who is near. You are the God who loves us. And today, Lord, for those who are struggling that are going through a very difficult time, I, sh- I pray, Lord, that you speak to them, that you show them yourself, that you are the holy God who longs to have a relationship with them. Show them the depth of your love. It was poured out upon the cross for them. Show your victory through your resurrection. And Lord, help us to live by faith in and through that resurrection life that you have given unto us. That we might, Lord, that you might increase in glory and that we might increase in joy. Be with us. Touch us, use us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.